In 2015, Anthony Doerr won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, All the Light We Cannot See. That is one provocative title. And the story is even more provocative. Set in France during World War II, it's the tale of a young French girl who is born blind. And her father, a museum locksmith in Paris, her only surviving parent. All the light we cannot see is not only a description of that blind girl, but a description of all the characters in that sprawling story. And as it turns out, it's also the truth about the, you and the, the, the life you and I are now living. All the light we cannot see. It makes you wonder, are we blinder than we think? Take David Brooks, celebrated columnist with the New York Times. A friend of mine sent me this op-ed piece that appeared just a few days ago. And who wouldn't, who wouldn't raise an eyebrow with the title to this piece, America is Falling Apart at the Seams? Brooks opens by discussing a curious factoid coming out of this pandemic, namely that our, our statistics of reckless driving have gone up while America during the pandemic is driving less. So what's up with that? He spends the first seven paragraphs of his op-ed piece describing seven disturbing trends that have become reality in America right now. I'm not going to point those trends out to you. But then he comes to some conclusions, and I need you to see these carefully, please. David Brooks, but something darker and deeper seems to be happening as well. A long-term loss of solidarity, a long-term rise in estrangement and hostility. This is what it feels like to live in a society that is dissolving from the bottom up as much as from the top down. America's favorite parlor game today is to criticize the top. Guess what? From the bottom up, it's coming. Deliver us. And then he offers this diagnosis. But there must also be some spiritual or moral problem at the core of this. Over the past several years and over a wide range of different behaviors, Americans have been acting in fewer pro-social and relational ways and in more antisocial and self-destructive ways. But why, Dave Brooks asks. As a columnist, I'm supposed to have some answers. But I just don't know right now. I just know that the situation is dire." End quote. Now, look, if this had come from some evangelist or perhaps even a theologian or a churchman, we'd all smile and say, well, that's, a, that's religious fervor from you, for you, rather. But this comes from one of the bright luminaries in the American publishing world, a deep-thinking mind. And when he suggests what your heart has been muttering about for months now, when he puts words to our unspoken thoughts, everybody sits up and takes notice. Hmm. Is America falling apart at the seams? And could it have something to do with all the light 
we cannot see? The answer is yes. I want to tell you a story right now. It's not a story about a blind girl. It's a story about a blind boy, both of them blind from birth. The story is told, Reader's Digest fashion, just a few sparse words and details. But what a provocative thought. Open your Bible with me to the blind boy. His age is probably a little over 13. We know that because in the dialogue in the story, which we will not note, his parents say, he is of age, let him speak for himself. And when you say he is of age, that means 13 and up. So his parents are still alive, clearly. Who knows his age, but he's young like you. All right? John chapter 9. Open your Bible to John chapter 9. Let's read the opening salvo to this story. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, speaking of Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Huh. My. You know what? From birth, this boy has lived with all the light we cannot see. Can you imagine what it would be to not have seen a single ray of light in your entire life? How would you visualize what someone is telling you? How would you visualize what you're even thinking? Yo, did you see that red metallic Corvette that just roared by with that T-top on it and the driver with that cowboy hat? What a sight. Can I put my hands on that car? Listen, if you said that to me and I was born blind, I w you, you would be speaking a foreign language to me. Metallic red, cowboy hat, what's that? Oh, never take for granted those two precious organs right here on your face. Your eyes are beautiful. Now, it's true, when you were growing up, your mother wished sometimes that you were mute. You know what that is, don't you? Yeah, you can't talk. This boy, this girl has talked long enough. Mute, please. But nobody ever wishes someone else were blind. Unless, of course, you're having a bad hair day and you're about to meet the boy of your dreams. God's give him blindness now. Don't you ever pray that prayer. Never. All the light we cannot see. From his birth, this young man has never been able to see not a single iota of a light. But what's so amazing, for me anyway, is that this story in the Gospel of John, and oh boy, thank you, chap, for telling me that there was a survey this last week, and the number one book chosen by 600 and some students at Andrews University is the Gospel of John. Hallelujah. We're in John today. But here's what stuns me. There's not only this story, but four chapters earlier, it feels like he's telling the exact same story, only it's the story of a lame boy, and this is the story of a blind boy. 
Something's going on here. And I didn't know until this last week when I pulled out the eminent New Testament scholar, Craig Keener. I have his two-volume commentary on John. And as I read, I I said, I have never seen this before in my life. And I'm going to share it with you now. I'm going to share it so fast, it isn't even going to show up on the screen. I just need you to feel what you are about to hear. Eleven similarities between the healing of the lame man in John 5 and the healing of the blind boy in John 9. Eleven of them. There must be a point John is making. Let's find out. Here come the similarities. Number one. John begins both their stories by giving a brief history of their ailment. Number two, in both stories, Jesus takes the initiative. Number three, both stories involve a pool of water that that has healing powers. Bethesda back in five and Siloam here in nine. Number four, in both stories, Jesus intentionally heals the young man on the seventh day Sabbath. In both stories... Number five, the religious leaders hit the ceiling. They are so upset and accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Number six, in both stories, the man gets asked by the religious leaders, who healed you? And don't you suppose the religious leaders already knew the answer? Hmm. In both stories, number seven, neither healed man knows where or who is Jesus. Apparently, Jesus can walk by you, and you don't know Jesus. You've never heard of him before, but he knows you need him, and he'll step into your life just like that. I love that thought, don't you? You don't have to know Jesus to be healed by Jesus. Wow. Number eight, in both stories, Jesus finds the healed man and invites him to believe. Now that you're healed, do you believe? Number nine, in the lame man's story, Jesus implies relation between his sin and suffering. But with the blind man, Jesus rejects sin as an explanation for suffering. What a contrast. Number 10, in the first story, the healed man goes to the Jews. But in the second story, the Jews cast out the healed man. And finally, number 11... Both stories end with Jesus saying he is working as his Father is working. I must do the works of him who sent me as Jesus defends himself against their charges of Sabbath-breaking. Why is John telling two stories the same way both times? Because he intends both stories to make the same provocative point, and we can't miss it. But there's one other similarity that Craig Keener does not mention. And our friend Sigvee Tonstad, God bless him, in his book, The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day, draws our attention to this particular detail that Keener leaves out. He didn't mention Keener at all. But let me put put Tonstad on the screen. Two details, one in each of these chapters, chapter 5 with the lame man, chapter 9 with the blind man, Two details are giveaways that make the sensitive issue, which is the true meaning of the Sabbath, stand out clearly. Keep reading. In the story of the paralytic, the red flag. Now, you know that if you want to get a bull's attention, this is, this is probably urban legend, but if you want to get a bull's attention, and it probably is true, you just wave the red flag. Isn't that what you do? Yeah. Keep reading. In the story of the paralytic, the red flag in the account is the mat. In the story of the blind man, the red flag in the account is the mud. 
Jesus throws down the gauntlet by publicly ignoring Jewish Sabbath regulations. Two of the 39 prohibitions for Sabbath keeping in existence at the time of Christ specifically dealt with carrying a pallet and kneading dough. You know, like a woman needs dough. You can't bake bread on the Sabbath because that's working. Man, oh man, oh man, what's going on here? In both healings. Jesus intentionally challenges the onerous regulations that have become attached to proper Sabbath observance. He commands the layman, hey, by the way, before you leave, pick up your mat. Now you can go. He stoops over and he spits in the dust of the earth and kneads a gooey saliva mud dough and smears some of it on the blind man's eyes. Yuck. What's going on? Tom's dead again. But the Sabbath healings are deliberate actions of Jesus. And by the way, as I mentioned a moment ago, there are seven Sabbath healings, five in the synoptics, two in John. Jesus does not stumble into these conflicts by accident. We are not likely to hear Jesus say, man, if I had known they would get so upset, I would not have done it. No. Time and again, John is informing his readers that Jesus understands the implications of his actions, end quote. Hey, listen, come on. Let's just be honest here. Both men could have been healed on another day. You could wait a day. What's the big rush, right? Both could have been healed more discreetly. He could have refrained from using any mud at all. Be healed, and he would have been healed. He could have told the layman, come back after sundown and pick this mat up and go home. He doesn't. The mat and the mud were red flags to the establishment that Jesus is now intentionally challenging the burdensome, law, the burdensome laws that have crushed out the life of the seventh-day Sabbath, God's wonderful, God's beautiful gift of himself in the seventh day of every week. And he challenges that robbery. You've destroyed my day. Wow. You see, the Jewish hierarchy is stuck in a pre-fall, primordial Seventh-day Sabbath where all is well and God quietly rests with his two closest human being friends. They're stuck there. They have made no provision for a world in which we now live where suffering is rife and humanity hurts. Hmm. No, 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 no. You're not supposed to do this on this day. You rest like God. Do we know that they think that way? Oh, we do. We go back to the chapter 5 story. Here's the saga. Here's what they say to Jesus. So because Jesus, this is John 5, 16 and forward. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, you should be resting like God, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Keep reading. In his defense, Jesus says to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I I, too, am working. Oh, now, look out. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus does not claim God's rest for the Sabbath in his own defense. He instead declares God's ever-present work. I got to tell you, I've read John many times, and every time, truth True confession. Every time I come to that verse 17, I say to myself, I have. I won't do it again. I say to myself, how could this be? 
I mean, you're being charged with breaking the Sabbath, and you're using working on the Sabbath as your answer. It's just, there's something that doesn't add up here. Tonstad himself, I find out, wrestles with that. And he explains, being present, that's the emphases here are his, being present and responding to present reality constitutes the essence of Jesus' idea of the Sabbath. Why, you and I, when we began this series, that was, that was the big point. Wow, God is immersed in this day. He is present in the day. And when I ignore the day, I ignore him. Don says, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the essence of the Sabbath that Jesus is trying to, to teach. At creation, God's commitment to humanity is described by God's rest. But the reality of disease and death calls for a different Sabbath message. Resting in the face of crying needs implies remoteness and indifference. God is not like that. God is not remote. God is present. Can I get an amen for that? God is present. This message written on the Sabbath from the beginning is still the message of the Sabbath, and Jesus delights to point it out. No matter how shocking the thought, and it was shocking when I finally got what he was saying, Jesus defends his actions by the ultimate criterion. My father is working, underline. My father is working until now, and I am also working. Translation is Sigby's translation. Prioritizing the notion of presence, working takes precedence over resting. God is, as it were, hard at work to make right what is wrong. My, oh, my, oh, my. You see, we, we, we love the text, especially at Christmas time, which we just come out of. Uh, John 1, 14, uh, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Remember that text? And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, we love that text. We forget that the reason for verse 14 is given in verse 18, and nobody reads verse 18 anymore. So let's read verse 18 in tandem with verse 14 in the mighty prologue of the fourth gospel. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, I love that verse. Everybody loves the verse. But here comes verse 18. Why did He come? Ah, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God and, and, and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. My, 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 why did Jesus come? To tell the truth about God. He made him known. In other words, Jesus came to reveal plain, simple, and profound. He came to reveal the Father to the human race. Over and over on the night before his execution. So tomorrow, Good Friday, he will be exterminated. Tonight, he talks of what is most important to him. And three times we hear him make the point. You know it. In fact, you'll finish these sentences. If you have seen me, Jesus said in the upper room, you have what? You've seen the Father. Here's another one. If you know me, you will what? You will know my Father as well. Here's the third one. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Tonstad again. Jesus is God. Let there be no mistake. Jesus is God in this gospel. But if one message is more important, it is this to show that God is like Jesus. That's the truth. My. 
So when Jesus performs his seven Sabbath healings and miracles, which were performed on the seventh-day Sabbath, which the Lord of the Sabbath, as Chuck and company have reminded us, gave at the beginning of creation. When Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, he means the way I have healed you and loved you and treated you on the Sabbath is the way the Father has healed you and loved you and treats you on the Sabbath. I am. I am. Sigvitan's dead one last time. Maintenance of the created order will not suffice when the created order is threatened by dissolution and when human beings are in the thrall of disease and death. Rather than waiting for human beings to break the deadlock by impeccable Sabbath observance, the Jews themselves have still rumored, listen, if we can just keep the day perfectly once, just once the Messiah will come. No, 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 no. Rather than waiting for human beings to break the deadlock by impeccable Sabbath observance, Jesus brings the Father's compassion to view on the Sabbath. In the words of G. Campbell Morgan, there can be no rest for God while humanity is suffering. Jesus cannot wait until the next day. Listen, why why don't you just come back the next day and do this? Manana. No, I cannot wait. Jesus cannot wait till the next day because he is magnifying the original message of the Sabbath in the context of human suffering now, ministering to the person in need, reaching out to heal and to restore lies at the heart of the divine character and mission, end quote. Which means that in this pandemic, from which it feels we will never be released, there is no rest for God while humanity is suffering. Let us be reminded, God is not up there resting under some celestial palm tree sipping pina coladas. No, he's down here. He cannot rest while we suffer. God is down here alongside us in the grit and the grime and the infectious dying of COVID-19 suffering. I watched this week a heartbroken widow lean over the casket and love on the very still form of her life companion. And as I watched, look, if we are created in God's image, and I was feeling what I was feeling in that sacred moment, I cannot imagine the heart of God in the midst and the mess of our suffering. It is no wonder. God cannot sleep at night. He holds me. He holds me fast. Night and day. He will never let you go until he comes for you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Doesn't take our suffering away. It's bad down here, God. It's 
terrible down here. And he knows. Because Jesus came once upon a time. He knows. It is no wonder. It is also no wonder. God's love chooses still to be incarnated into our dreadful and deadly suffering. The Seventh-day Sabbath still declares there can be no rest for God while humanity is suffering. And thus, the Seventh-day Sabbath that repeats itself every single week of human time declares that in the midst of our suffering, God now is present to heal as best He can, given the high stakes of this endgame battle. Every seventh day comes with the God who suffers with us immersed in the Sabbath beside us. What a profound difference. Hey, come on, come on, come on. What a profound difference this existential truth can make in our celebration of the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord our God, every single week with the Jesus who gave us the Sabbath. So, so, come on, Dwight. What's all this have to do with David Brooks' warning? America is falling apart at the seams. You want me to be honest? Do you want me to be honest? I will. I believe all the light we cannot see for America is the light that shines from the Lord of the Sabbath through His Seventh-day Sabbath. Keep listening. And until and unless America returns to to her Creator and His Sabbath, all the King's horses and all the King's men will never be able to put America back together again. America long ago cast off the restraints of any notion of a creator God. Thus, in the words of the ancient prophet, we, we have sown the wind, and now we are reaping the whirlwind. And to my evangelical friends in, Christ, in evangelical Christianity, and I, I'm blessed with a lot of friends, evangelicals. I got preacher friends that I love. I got everyday people friends that I love living next door to. But to my friends in evangelical Christianity in America, the key to your passion to revive America and restore America is found in Jesus' gift of the seventh day. He is not just Lord of salvation. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And you can't bifurcate him. You cannot separate him. The two go together. One creator. And any effort to revive America without Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath is both neutered and doomed. It will not happen. And to my Seventh-day Adventist friends, and I have a few of them as well, to my Seventh-day Adventist friends, I remind you that without Jesus, we will remain right about the day and dreadfully wrong about the way, and we will be as blind as everybody else, everybody else. 
The Jews could not, could not solve the demise of their nation. There's no way the Sabbath has any meaning apart from a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ as creator. All the light we cannot see because until we see Jesus immersed in the seventh-day Sabbath and enshrined in our hearts and our homes on the Sabbath, we are blind. We are blind. Don't you be clucking your tongue for America or for your evangelical neighbors. We, you, and me are blind. And we will walk in darkness and never see the light. So let me repeat to my friends in America, my friends in evangelical Christianity, and to my friends, the Seventh-day Adventists, if you could see the light you cannot see now, if you could know the Jesus you do not know now, you would discover in his Seventh-day Sabbath what you do not have now. You don't have it. I can tell it. The gift of himself, immersed and embedded in the gift of his Sabbath, that is the gift that will yet bring the peace and rest we desperately long for in America, in Asia, in Africa, in every hemisphere, north and south, for the entire world. The answer is the Creator and Savior, Jesus. I end with Jesus' appeal, and it comes beautifully packaged in this line from Desire of Ages. To all who receive the Sabbath as a sign of Christ's creative and redeeming power, it will be a delight. Seeing Christ in it, they delight themselves in Christ. The Sabbath points them to the works of creation as an evidence of His mighty power in redemption. While it calls to mind the lost peace of Eden, it tells of the peace restored through the Savior. And every object in nature repeats His invitation, and here it comes. Let's say it out loud together. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest, the gift of rest, the gift of peace, the gift for the rest of our lives is Jesus, is Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, God. Oh, Christ Jesus, our Lord, for the rest of our life we do not have For the rest of the light we cannot see, we ask of you. We ask for you right now. Please, Lord Jesus, give us the grace and the courage to take the gift and to keep the Sabbath for the rest of our lives. 
with you. Amen.